Those Space People, a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects. Today we have Tanya Harrison. Tanya has worked on several NASA Mars missions for over a decade and is currently the Director of Science Strategy at Planet. She has a background in geology and she specializes in planetary science and exploration. Tanya is currently based in Washington, United States and welcome to the podcast, Tanya. Thanks so much for having me. So you have a bachelor in astronomy and physics. So what is it about Mars that particularly attracted you? Was it the the geological similarities or dissimilarities or the unique planetary evolution which Mars has undergone or as a potential home for humanity in the far future? What is it about Mars that really drew you in? The first thing that really drew me in was actually the Sojourner rover. So more than Mars itself being interesting, I remembered after Pathfinder and Sojourner landed together, watching Sojourner drive onto the surface of Mars was just the coolest thing I had ever seen as a kid. And for some reason, that really set me off. I was like, I want to work on Mars rovers. And then after that, it shifted specifically to the geology of Mars and wanting to understand how did it change from what we think was maybe this warm, wet place full of rivers and lakes and maybe an ocean to this dry, arid desert that we see today that is extremely cold. I I was really fascinated in what Mars used to be like. And so I wanted to be able to investigate that big mystery. Yeah, a lot of it, I I would attribute the incredible outreach that NASA has been doing for the last, I don't know, since forever, all around space is what really attracted a lot of people to, to to space, right? Even for me, I've participated in the space settlement design competition as a high school kid, and that's when the, the space bug really caught me, and then it's there's no looking back since. So it, it really highlights the importance of communication, science communication. Absolutely. I, I was part of something similar. NASA had this Mars Millennium Project back in 1999, where they challenged students to design a base on Mars in the year 2030. And they actually aired a PSA for it during Star Trek Voyager. And I saw that commercial and I said, oh, I really want to be a part of this. But I didn't have any friends that were nerdy enough to do it with me. So it was literally just me doing tons of research about Mars. I wrote like this huge paper about it afterward. Got to go to the Mars Society conference in Toronto that year. It was the third conference that they'd ever thrown and like present my project there, which was so intimidating because I was like 13, 14 years old talking to a room of adults. (laughs) I just sat there and read everything off a piece of notebook paper because I was like terrified to make eye contact with anybody in the room. (laughs) But the response was so supportive. I think the people there were really excited to see someone so young, like that enthusiastic about Mars. So a lot of them reached out and they really wanted to kind of like act as mentors and shepherd me in the right direction. And so I greatly appreciate that experience, even though like in the moment it was extremely nerve wracking. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I can completely uh, imagine that. So can you talk about your current role at Planet and how your Martian experience contributes to your everyday work, perhaps? So right now, my role as Director of Science Strategy on the federal team specifically, so I work with federal civilian agencies, mostly NASA, but we have an agreement with NASA that provides data to all of the Fed Civ agencies for scientific research, other groups like U.S. Geological Survey, uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Fish and Wildlife, National Park Service. It's really amazing. So I get to work as this interface between the scientific community externally to planet, 
help them figure out how to integrate our imagery into their workflows. Some of them I'll actively collaborate on research with uh, since my background is in geology and remote sensing myself. And then I take that information and I feed it back into the company in terms of finding people that might want feedback in terms of product development, any of our interfaces that users might interact with. If there's something that people have suggestions of changing, or maybe there's a bug that keeps coming up that we could fix. And just from the standpoint of trying to meet planet's mission one, which is to use space to help life on earth. And so being able to show people at the company things like how scientists are actively using the data to understand the effects of climate change, or trying to understand how certain animal habitats are being impacted so we can try to save different species, looking at how coral reefs are being impacted so mitigation strategies to try and save coral reefs can be created. It's really rewarding for them to see that the company is achieving the goals that they set out to through the science community. Now, it might seem a little bit of a like a huge right turn to go from working on Mars geology to working on Earth, but there's two big things that come into play here. One is that the geology of all of the rocky bodies in the solar system, be they planets, moons, asteroids, is very similar. So if you understand what certain features look like on one planet, you can take that and apply it to another one. We know what volcanoes look like on Mars because they look exactly like volcanoes on Earth. We know what craters look like. We know what channels that were carved by water look like. So usually when you're studying something like planetary science, you get a foundation first in terrestrial geology, so stuff on Earth, and then you apply that to Mars through analogs that we see on the Earth that look like stuff on Mars. The other case is cameras are cameras regardless of what they're pointing at. So a lot of my work on Mars missions was working in mission operations for cameras on satellites and rovers. And so I have a really good understanding of sensors inside cameras, optical systems, commanding these sorts of uh, camera systems. And so I'm just doing some of this, not exactly the same thing because I don't operate any of the satellites at Planet. That's a different team. But I can take my knowledge of how cameras work and how satellite imagery works and how to interpret satellite imagery and take all that experience from Mars and apply it to Earth. Okay, great. So when you're talking about the economic, the impacts of space on, on life on Earth, do you also contribute to this? Because there's this uh, really amazing metric put out by NASA and also ESA, where they talk about how every dollar or every euro invested in space contributes to X uh, dollars in GDP. So do, do you also uh, contribute to these metrics or these kind of studies in any way? Not directly. There might be researchers that are using our data that contribute data to that sort of study, but it's not something that we've participated in actively. Okay. Okay, great. I saw your latest tweet about transitioning from the academia to the industry, right? How including a slide from the marketing team kind of triggers your <laughs> internal plagiarism checks. So that was, uh, so do you, what, what other challenges have you faced when you transition from the industry, uh, from the academia to the industry? That's a good question. Yeah. I'm not sure I had that many challenges because I actually worked in industry before. So I took four years off between my master's and my PhD working for a commercial company that conveniently also built cameras for satellites, but only for Mars at the time and a few other planetary missions for NASA. And so right out of my master's, I was doing that. And then I went back to get a PhD and then did a postdoc and then worked at Planet. 
So I already had some experience in the working nine to five, having certain metrics that you have to meet that are maybe different from the kind of metrics that you would have to meet on the academic side. I would say more than a challenge, the biggest shift, like mental shift has been it is so much harder to have any time to focus on one single project. And that could just be a factor of my particular job. If I did something like my only job was mission operations or my only job was image processing pipeline or something like that, I could really hone in on it. But since I'm working with so many different researchers on so many different projects, every half hour of my day is chopped up by different meetings and and telecons and stuff like that. And so it can feel like you're not being very productive. You're busy, but not productive. And I miss having the ability to just completely pour myself into a research project and just take a week, write a paper or sit down and dig through the imagery and do some investigations. Um, I don't have the time to do that anymore. So I live vicariously through all the scientists that are using our data. And I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Oh, this project's so cool. Oh, I'm really glad someone is doing this thing because I would love to do that, but I have no time. So that part sucks. But other than that, I, I love what I do. And it's so exciting to be able to work on so many different projects or get exposed to so many different projects because it means that you're so busy. You also never get bored and you never know what you're going to see from day to day. It could be something about walruses or whales. It could be something about like urban development. It could be something about agriculture. It could be something about how the Arctic is changing. It's all exciting. Some of the stuff is depressing, but it's cool to see what we can see from space. <laughs> yeah. Now that you mentioned the Arctic, right? There's a lot of, there's always been a lot of criticism against the money we pour into space research or space uh, exploration. And now, especially we have this, we had this amazing month of the Virgin Galactic and the Blue Origin kicking off space tourism again, bringing all the excitement around space tourism. But again, it's, there's, they've also been facing a lot of criticism from the climate change perspective. So do you think this criticism from the climate change perspective would eventually trickle down to space research, even though the amount of money that we're pouring into it is very little compared to the other spendings of the government? Especially now that there's a strain on economies across the world after COVID, how do you think this would impact our spending on space research? I think we're already seeing really negative attitudes from the environmentalist climate change community. And it's really a shame because there is so much of what's being done in space that is directly being used to understand the impacts of climate change and to help things happening here on the surface of the earth and to help humans directly. But the narrative has been really twisted between hatred for billionaires, which has been translated into hatred for space, And it's so sad to see. It's just poisoned the idea of why so many of us have gone into the space sector in the first place. And it is because we want to build a better future for humanity and we want to help everyone. And space gives you a really unique way to do this. So I don't know what the solution is to bridge that gap, but I think it's a critical one for us to try to close. Because if this attitude only gets worse as the effects of climate change get worse, We could see a backlash in terms of reduced funding from space agencies unless they really make a strong push to try and be better at communicating how space is benefiting life on Earth. 
And that's easy to do with things like Earth observing missions. We can say we're monitoring the weather with NOAA satellites. We're monitoring the surface of the Earth every day with Landsat satellites. But then you take something like Mars and you ask, well, how does this benefit life on Earth? And I would say this is something that gives a lot of inspiration to people to go into STEM fields, even if they don't work on Mars missions. I mean, I worked on Mars for 10 plus years, and now I'm very directly working on something that benefits life on Earth. I have other colleagues who majored in planetary science, did master's degrees, PhDs, and now they work for space agencies around the world or Natural Resources Canada. So they're actually actively studying the Earth, but it was space that brought them into that in the first place. And it also gives us a really creative way to think about problem solving. You aren't so constrained when you're thinking about how to solve a problem in space because you can pitch crazy ideas for things that, that you want to do for people to live on the moon or Mars. And if you pitch that same idea to help life on Earth, it might be dismissed as being too wacky, too out there, too expensive, too futuristic. But you can try to bring those together and meet somewhere in the middle. It doesn't have to be this crazy futuristic idea that we'll put in place on Mars 50 years from now. If you have the idea and it's something that could benefit Earth, like carbon capture technology, for example, we need that on Mars to generate breathable oxygen. We need that on Earth to reduce CO2 levels. So why not work together to do the same thing? And we have Elon Musk has his carbon capture challenge right now, which I think is not necessarily because he cares about climate change. I think it's because he wants to help spur the development of technology that we need to survive on Mars. But we're killing two birds with one stone. You're using one thing on one planet to help solve the problems on another planet. Yeah. Yeah, this is akin to this, not philosophy, akin to this perspective of Starship Earth, essentially viewing Earth as a huge spaceship as part of space and not really having a boundary between space, outer space and Earth. Solving, like you said, two, two birds with the same stone. So two problems with the same idea. Uh, so now planetary research is, is mostly undertaken by space agencies across the world. Do you see at any point in future planetary research making a business case for private companies to also participate? Because for instance, we only had uh, space agencies do in uh, space stations like the Mir or the ISS or now the Tiangong, but a commercial space station is being planned in the next 10 years. By Do you see this happening with space planetary research at some point? I think that's tough. Like research specifically, I think we're a really long way off just because it's really hard to have an economic tie back to Earth for studying things like the history of life on Mars or trying to figure out whether there's life in the oceans of Europa. It's a really important question for us to answer, but unless it's just a billionaire funding this because they have their own personal aspirations of wanting to answer these questions – it's not something that you can necessarily build a sustainable company around. And that's the key there. And that's where some sort of impetus from the government needs to come from. Like right now you have a lot of commercial companies that are working on lunar stuff, but a lot of that is because you have programs through NASA, like the commercial lunar payload services program CLIPS, that is driving research in that direction or driving technological development specifically for the moon. So it's a partnership. The government kind of sets the direction of where they want to see things go. They can provide the initial funding to motivate companies to do that. And then the companies need to build the ecosystem that is then sustainable, hopefully without the majority of the money coming from the government. 
So once we have people living on the moon and maybe people living on Mars, then you've created something to actually build a commercial ecosystem where maybe there are companies that want to develop things like life support technology specifically for Mars or mining technology specifically for Mars or lab equipment specifically to study stuff on Mars. But some of that funding is coming from NASA or National Science Foundation or something like that. But I think it's still so early on. We've seen some companies try to do it and fail, like Planetary Resources, for example. They were just too forward thinking for their time. It, we don't have the ability to do asteroid mining yet. And so asteroid prospecting, even though it's a potentially a good idea from a business standpoint, the ethics are a whole other question, which I'll leave to later if it's something you want to talk about. But it, it's not something that we could do in the next five to 10 years. So it's not a good business case up front. So that's a long way of saying I don't see it being commercially viable, specifically for research in the near term, but maybe in, say, the next 25 to 50 years, that might change. Okay, interesting. The 50 years is, of course, it's a quite a long timeline. I really hope to be alive in 50 years. <laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see where this all ends up. Yeah, I, exactly. And that's what that's why I was really excited when Elon Musk announced the Neuralink stuff. You know, I was like, please keep me alive for another 500 years. I want to see you <laughs> on Mars. Exactly. Then, send my brain to Mars, but my body doesn't have to stay in a spaceship for eight months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. But then I guess I've watched too many episodes of Black Mirror to also see how it could be. Yeah, <laughs> uh, flip side. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So speaking of this, do you read or watch any space sci-fi? Oh, yeah, I am a huge sci-fi fan. I've been a Star Trek nerd since I was a kid. Like Star Trek Next Gen started when I was like two or three years old. So I grew up watching that with my parents and then finish anything else I could get my hands on. I was really into Farscape when I was younger. Firefly, Battlestar Galactica, Stargate, sort of. And I have a ton of like sci-fi books on my shelf. I used to read a lot of the classics when I was younger, like Heinlein and Ben Bova and, and stuff like that. And now I'm reading more. Like I have Andy Weir's new book, which I still haven't finished yet. And I feel like all my friends have finished reading Hail Mary and I have I like just bought it. Sorry, I'm way behind the times there. It's been really hard to set aside time to read books these days, but I'm really trying to make an effort every morning to sit down with my cup of tea and read a chapter of a book with no digital distraction whatsoever, like disconnect from technology a little bit. <laughs> yeah, there are, there's a lot of sci-fi which focuses on for different aspects. There's a lot of hard sci-fi, for instance, that involves a lot of astrophysics. So is, is there any science fiction that focuses a lot on the geological aspects of planets? I can't think of any quickly off the top of my head that I've read that really focus on the geology. There's certainly ones where it's mentioned, like the the Mars trilogy from Kim Stanley Robinson. There's like some discussion of geology in there, but it's been a long time since I've read it. I don't recall that it was extremely thorough. Yeah, I actually can't think of any. Maybe you've <laughs> just picked where I need to write my first science fiction novel focused on <laughs> super would... accurate Mars geology. <laughs> that would be awesome. I would totally love to read it. Oh, I, I just know I just know a little bit about, I don't know if you've read this book called, it talks about life evolving on a neutron star. I keep forgetting the name of this book, but then it basically oh, talks about- familiar. Yeah, it's a very hard sci-fi. It's quite old, a little offbeat. So basically it talks about life, which evolves very 
similar to how life evolved and in on earth how the first sentients or humans figured out how to calculate how to count essentially that was the beginning of everything learning how to count like 1 2 3 and they talk about all this mm-hmm. and but then it evolves at a very rapid rapid scale so the, the, the at nuclear exponential scale it evolves and it's, it's also quite interesting so i was wondering if there's something from uh, the geology perspective which i don't know something called geology rocks or some <laughs> stuff like that <laughs> okay i guess if it. anybody's listening and can think of a book that kind of takes that direction definitely let us know on twitter <laughs> cuz i'd be yeah, curious but- to read it if there is one Yeah, that that would be fabulous. Yes. So you've mentioned a little bit about your colleagues at Planet, right? What backgrounds do they come from? It's extremely diverse. We have different flavors of engineers who actually build the satellites. We've got software people that write the the code to command the satellites and process the imagery. We've got a lot of um, former NASA people, both on the engineering side and and a few on the science side. Um, we have. a gigantic sales team so you have people that don't come from a, a space background at all they might be from other tech companies or stuff that you wouldn't expect at all just like people that did sales for other bay area companies that's most of it and then of course human resources accounting like anything that any normal business would need so it's cool to see the wide array of backgrounds like i would say at least half of the company doesn't have a traditional space job that you might think of when you think of things like rocket scientist or planetary scientist but now they get to work in the space industry so there's a lot of different pathways to get into these companies and do something related to space yeah that's cool also i'd like to talk about you're also a great proponent of having diversity in the space sector and i also completely connect with that but then when we look at the diversity dialogues across the world it's first of all i believe that diversity is it's if we put diversity into different buckets we all belong to like different groups for instance you can be from for example i am from a developing country which is not really represented on a global scale in space and i'm i'm also a woman right so in many ways we fit into these different diversity subgroups but however globally if we see the diversity dialogue focuses on different things in different parts of the world for instance in europe the primary debate around or the dialogue around diversity is men and women but whereas if we zoom a little out and in the US and Australia for instance there's much more inclusion in terms of having the lgbtq uh, plus community and then if we zoom out a little more and then there's this other dialogue of including the emerging players in the space dialogue so how do you think we can connect these different di- diversity dialogues or narratives that are going on in different parts of the world that's a really good question i think At the end of the day, a lot of the issues that all of these separate communities are having, specifically in terms of the space sector, are similar regardless of what country that you're in. And so if we can talk about solutions for one group in the United States for space, it's probably very similar to the same solutions for that group in places like Australia or Western Europe. And so just having those dialogues and understanding how we can better support these communities and recognizing that diversity is more than just we need more women in the industry. So there's still a lot of other extremely underrepresented communities and not just underrepresented but you know actively excluded communities for so long where women weren't allowed to do this. And for me I'm a really big advocate of inclusion of people with disabilities because it's a place where there's been a lot of gatekeeping and it, it there have not really been a lot of 
efforts made in terms of accessibility and inclusion for people with either physical or mental disabilities. Um, and the barriers that exist for like people of color are so much stronger than the barriers that exist for like white women, as, as an example, regardless of where you are in the world, we still have a, a long way to go in that. So I, I think if we can have these conversations on an international scale through things like podcasts like this, through virtual conferences, now that we don't necessarily have to travel, we're opening up the ability for people to connect who maybe didn't have the option to travel to these things before. So it gives a chance for more people to have a voice in the conversation. And I think at the end of the day, that will do nothing but good to try to break down more of these barriers and solve these problems, you know, not just in one place, but hopefully around the world. Okay. That's okay. Yeah, I think it's going to be quite slow, very slow, but then steady, hopefully. And so we can finally get there. And what skills it or so to get into planetary research, what skill set or educational qualifications are required for someone? If you want to be a researcher specifically, a lot of that still happens on the academic side. There's not a ton of options in industry. So you would you probably want to get a PhD in something like planetary science. If you're interested in planets themselves, if you're really into the gas giants or weather and atmospheric sciences, maybe you get a PhD in atmospheric science. If you're interested in the interiors of planets and, and how like the core of the Earth works, the core of the moon or Mars, you might want to study geophysics. So there's a lot of different options depending on specifically what your area of interest is on a planet or around a planet. Or if you want to be like an engineer working on space missions, then you might want to do like a master's degree in engineering, a PhD tends to often be overkill. So I would say figure out what your specific area of interest is and then your desire in terms of do you want to be an academic researcher or are you looking to get involved on the industry side? And poke around and see on places like LinkedIn or people's professional websites, what backgrounds do those folks have? What did they major in? What was their career path? And you can see what things look like they might be right for you and mimic the path that you think will take you to where you end up where, to where you want to go. Okay, that's interesting. What's your take on the, the the whole space debris problem? So for instance, one of the biggest problems we have in the whole space environment right now is the, I wouldn't say the, probably the lack of a proper sp space traffic management. Ideally, it would be great to have something akin to air traffic control for commercial airlines. But unfortunately, we don't have it yet. So how do you see this evolving in future? Would it be spearheaded by just nation states or would it be some sort of a private, public-private consortium of sorts? How do you see this evolving? It's something that is absolutely necessary, especially as we get more commercial players in the game that are not only launching satellites, but they're launching mega constellations of satellites and they're doing so very quickly. And then you have more emerging players in the space game in terms of like countries that were not previously spacefaring can now launch their own satellites. And even though space is really big, the useful orbits around the Earth are extremely limited in terms of the altitude. And so we have to make sure that we don't completely screw up those orbits by satellites colliding and creating so much debris that we can't use that orbit anymore, a Kessler effect kind of thing. And we have to make sure that we don't take up all the useful orbits now for countries that might want to become spacefaring down the line, and then suddenly there's no option for them to have a LEOSAT or a MEOSAT because all of the useful orbits have been taken up. In terms of who should be the one in charge of space traffic management, I think we're going to need 
your idea is right. We need some overarching body like the FAA, but for space that really pays attention to this stuff. They're constantly monitoring. We have some of that through, I guess now it falls under the purview of Space Force where they're monitoring debris, but really all they can do is say, oh, we think there's going to be a collision. There's not a lot of active things that can that we can do unless it's, okay, this satellite is actually still functional. We can use some thrusters, try to move it slightly out of the way so this collision doesn't happen. But there have been a lot of close calls, like very close calls, and this is a problem. Um, and it's something that we should really figure out how to handle now while it is still manageable, while there's not so much stuff in orbit that it becomes a crisis. Unfortunately, humans are not very good at dealing with things until it becomes an immediate crisis, and then they panic and try to figure out a solution. So hopefully, since the community as a whole, like the space community seems to recognize this is a huge issue, if we don't get oversight from the government, from some kind of overarching entity, like whatever we would create the FAA for space, I would hope that the community would become responsible enough to self-organize and figure out, okay, what are some strategies? And we're seeing that with companies that are trying to create things like license plate tags to track debris or capture debris and deorbit it or create little drag sails so that CubeSats can deorbit themselves and burn up and, and things like that. So that's good. The community wants to generally be good stewards of space. Now we just need the regulatory bodies to understand why this is such a big crisis and why they need to be like stepping up more and creating these regulations that everybody has to adhere to. Okay. Oh, but on one hand, of course, space sustainability and general safety in space, of course, is good for all players, everybody. But on the other hand, this chaotic nature of the space, uh, the, the chaotic status quo essentially is beneficial to companies which are trying to solve these problems. For instance, if it's, it's good business for someone who's trying to do active space debris removal or in-orbit space object tracking uh, as opposed to ground-based radar tracking. And somehow these comp these the companies which are trying to do this are mostly situated in countries like the USA or Japan or uh, Europe or where ESA is. So while this kind of a chaotic environment offers such great business benefits, business cases for these companies, so what incentive would there be for existing space players to clean up the environment or to make space more sustainable? I think that there's an understanding that in the long term it benefits everybody because it makes the space ecosystem or the potential for the space ecosystem last longer. You're not creating a problem where we could get this Kessler effect, where you've created so much debris that we can't track and it just becomes literally the Wild West in terms of stuff flying around and smashing into everything else. So there's a lot of self-serving interest there. We want to make sure that people can keep launching satellites because that's good for the satellite manufacturers. That's good for the rocket companies. It's just good for the whole space economy. There, there's, there, there's definitely a case to be made that the lack of regulation sort of makes companies happier in the very general sense of, oh, we can do whatever we want. That's a very capitalist argument that you'd probably hear in a lot of places in the United States, maybe elsewhere, but it's certainly an argument you hear a lot in the US to be like anti-regulation. But I think a lot of companies in the space sector also recognize that the regulation is inevitable. Something is going to need to be done. And so they imagine that some body is going to come in and have some rules. And so since they are, this world in terms of new space is so nascent in the grand scheme of things that 
a lot of these companies would actually prefer regulations to be in place now rather than down the line so that they haven't gone too far in one direction, only to potentially have regulations be put in place that cut off something that they were doing or make them have to significantly change their processes. And so it's actually a really good time right now, again, because we are so early on in the launches of these mega constellations. In particular, that's the one thing that obviously everybody's really concerned about. We have the chance to step in now before we have tens of thousands of small sats in orbit and we suddenly don't have any real legal way to deal with them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. But it's very interesting how everything would pan out here because space is so dynamic, even not only from the perspective of the engineering perspective, but also the entire regulatory, the business aspects are volatile and emerging every day that it's really exciting. Definitely. You never know what new company you're going to see pop up and what they're going to focus on. And I, I think that's sort of the cool thing about being in the new space industry at this specific point in history. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, fab. And also for me, I think one of the coolest, one of the most unexpected business cases was this company. Uh, it's been around for a while. So they do these memorial services, space memorial oh, yeah. services. So there's, I think there's a couple of companies in the US and probably in Australia where they, they are essentially, they take ashes of your loved ones and then give them a memorial in space. So that's for me, that was like, wow, how come I didn't get this idea before? It's so cool. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tanya. It's been really interesting. It's fabulous to meet you. And I wish we could speak again. I wish I could we could meet sometime in person. And one last question. If space enthusiasts or young professionals want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it? You can find me on Twitter as at Tanya of Mars, T-A-N-Y-A. Let's throw some people off with the spelling every once in a while. It's a great way to see what's going on in space, lots of opportunities that I'll, I'll post or retweet for internships and scholarships and activities people can get involved with. Or you can also contact me through my website. There's a form there at tanyaharrison.com. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for giving your time and uh, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. <laughs>